You are listening to Messy in the Middle, the show here to help you navigate the messy blend that is life and business today. I'm your host, Haley Johnson, and my guests and I are here to dish out all the hot takes, big wins, and seriously messy moments that come with being an entrepreneur. So grab another cup of coffee, you know you want to, and let's get into it. All right, welcome back to Messy in the Middle. Joining me today, I have Brayden Drake. Brayden is a California licensed attorney and tax professional, and he is your gay best friend here to help you get your legal, tax, and financial shit legal. Brayden works primarily with service-based creative small business owners through his signature program, Profit RX. Brayden, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So I have about a million different questions to help my listeners (laughs) and I get to know you better over the course of this episode. But to start, why don't you just tell our listeners a bit more about who you are and what you do? Sure. So a little bit complicated, but long (laughs) story short, I went to law school, graduated, took past the bar exam, did all that stuff. So I'm technically a licensed attorney. After I did the bar exam, I got my master's degree in tax law. So in the legal field, we call that an LLM. So I'm not a CPA. I'm a tax attorney and business attorney, technically speaking. But in my business, there's a lot of overlap. So most of the things that we need to know as small business owners from a legal and tax perspective are rather simple, academically speaking. So there's a lot of overlap with what I teach and what, you know, like a CPA or financial expert would teach. So essentially it all comes together and I teach all the backend business stuff that most people typically don't really want to learn about. <laughs> so something tells me that this might not have been the career path that young Brayden would have known about, <laughs> let alone dreamt of as a kid. Yeah. Did you always want to be a lawyer or was there more of a twisted path to get to even that point in your career? Well, how far back, like how far back are we rewinding is the question. I mean, like if you were five and you wanted to be a firefighter, (laughs) that might not be super relevant, but like was becoming a lawyer the plan? Yeah, no, actually. So my earliest memory was my favorite elementary school teacher was my third grade teacher, Mrs. Columbia, and she was in charge of Star Lab. I don't know. I think they had that all over the place, right? I'm not sure. Oh, it was really, you go in this like dome thing and it's like a fake. Um, you're looking at like a, the sky. And so my first memory was I wanted to be an astronomer. Okay. But beyond that, yeah, once I got into like junior high, I I did want to be, I did want to be an attorney pretty early on. And then that kind of went away and in college. I explored a lot of different paths. We could get into it. I studied Russian and Ukrainian and German and political science in college. And I thought I would end up doing like international business or international tax. And that didn't end up being exactly the path I went down. Did you always know or have an inkling that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, whether or not you knew that the law was going to be the direction that took you? Yes. Well, kind of. No. (laughs) (laughs) love it (laughs) explain (laughs) yeah no i i always thought it would be like cool to be an entrepreneur but it was never something i planned on happening and then really like really what it boiled down to was i always wanted to be like a business person like i thought all of my family like they're like blue collar folks my dad is like a contractor like has his own small construction business most of my uncles are farmers and I was like, I want to work like in a high rise and a suit and like make a lot of money and 
I'm like gay and I don't want to like get my hands dirty, like lots of (laughs) cliches. Right. But then ultimately I did internships and I hated all of them. And so I just decided I didn't really want to work for anyone. So I knew I wanted to be self-employed. And really what happened was most of the careers that I was interested in, I didn't really see possible as my own, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur. So like being an international tax attorney, it's a lot tougher to start out that way than doing like small business law. So that's how all of this kind of shaped itself. Gotcha. Um, so as I kind of touched upon a little bit earlier, before we started recording, I feel like you are everywhere online. Um, we said we don't remember how we first connected with one another. I feel like I knew who you were through random podcast interviews. And then one day it was like you became friends with my friend Kira and you were all over these Facebook groups. So how did you get started in the online side of entrepreneurship outside of just working with small businesses? And what was your strategy to become so everywhere? Okay. Well, first of all, that's like basically the best thing that you can tell me because oftentimes I feel like I could be doing so much more with marketing, (laughs) but now I have a team of VAs that do a lot of the legwork for me. And that tells me that like my minimum effort strategy (laughs) is, is really paying off. So how did I get started? Well, a lot of things, lots of things happened, right? I, I got kind of lucky when I decided to start my own law firm. I connected pretty quickly with just a small group of business folks here in San Diego. And a couple of them were more tapped into this online space than I was. So they introduced me to the world of podcasts. The first podcast I listened to was Gold Digger by Jenna Kutcher. And then uh, Amy Porterfield was one of her guests. So then I subscribed to Amy's podcast. And within like mere months, I was signed up for Amy's first round of Digital Course Academy. And that's really how I got into this uh, world to begin with. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then you said you have people who are helping you with like your minimum effort to be a little bit more everywhere. Um, Can you talk about maybe what that strategy is looking like for you? I know you're not the marketer, I'm the marketer, but I would love to know what you're doing since it's clearly getting you seen. Yeah, no, love to chat about that. So I actually, if people are really curious about this, more broadly speaking, my last podcast episode on my own podcast, I interviewed my whole team. So I have five different, yeah, I have five different VAs that work for me. And so I have them all share what they do. But one of my VAs is now my marketing manager and, uh, The reason I asked when we first started chatting how we got connected is because I'm extremely forgetful. And about three (laughs) weeks ago, I got asked to participate in three different bundles and in one summit that are all happening like in one month. And so now my marketing manager, her job is to like, she signs up for all the forums and she adds them to the calendar and she makes sure that the copywriter is promoting like the right bundle Mm -hmm. during the right week and the right email. So she does all of that. Um, She also sends podcast pitches for me fairly regularly. She manages my uh, Instagram content and she edits my TikTok videos and does the TikTok. And like I said, I have a copywriter. So they're doing like all of the stuff that needs to happen on a regular basis, which Mm -hmm. really just frees me up more to just like hang out in Facebook groups and like talk to people and like DM friends, which is this type of business development that I like to do. So I guess I like to say I do business development and they do a lot of the marketing. Yeah. So like you're the lead gen and sales side of things because you're developing those relationships, but they're the ones who are making sure that like you're visible online. Yes, exactly. And that ultimately is like what we're supposed to do as quote unquote visionaries, right? 
Right. I feel like I'm not a great visionary because I love doing all of that stuff. And like, even though I have people to help me sometimes at the end of the day, I like don't do a good job of organizing my thoughts to like get them delegated. (laughs) Hey, but but you know what? I feel like you help in your business, you help visionaries like get their vision in order, yeah. right? <laughs> and there are people that more integrator type people can pay to help with like the brainstorming and the ideation, and all that kind of stuff. So yes, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Definitely. So outside of the online side of things, you have a much more traditional educational resource, which is you wrote a book. So yeah. what made you decide to write a book? either in addition to or in lieu of the more popular like online program style of education? Well, I have both to be clear. I I have both. Um, The book, man, I always just, I always just wanted to, I've always wanted to write a book. Like since the time when I realized that like books just didn't like kind of appear in the universe (laughs) that people actually wrote them. I always thought, and this is such a silly thing. I always thought that like writing a book is something that like a really smart people do. Right. And a lot of my life is like me trying to like prove that I'm a smart, (laughs) like a smart person. Right. Mm. And so it was always just, it was kind of like an accomplishment, but I really, an accomplishment that I wanted to achieve. But until I had my own business, I never knew like, what would writing a book even look like? And then ended up being pretty simple because for my first online course I created, it's pretty typical to have lots and lots of PDF guides and mine were pretty text heavy. And I actually turned them into a textbook. And then the textbook became the basis for my actual book. So when I sat down with my book coach to do the outline, and I pieced everything together, I already had 30,000 of the 60 to 70,000 words like written, which was great. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that does sound great. So working with a book coach, like you mentioned, what was that process for you from idea to, you know, paperback in hand? Did you work with like an agent and a publisher or did you self-publish? What was kind of that process like outside of the fact that you accidentally wrote half the book before you started? (laughs) So I self-published and to be clear, it was a hardback in hand and I only bring that I only bring that up because um, it's something that my book coach likes to give me a hard time about because she says <laughs> I'm stubborn. And I, she said I'm like her second out of several hundred clients she's had who was adamant about having a hardcover book. Interesting. Yeah. And not that profitable. They cost a lot more to print. Mm-hmm. You get the picture. But uh, luckily for me, my book coach is in my mastermind, my small business mastermind that I've been in for about three years now. So she was like, I'm here when you're ready. And I messaged her. We set up uh, like a half VIP day that was essentially an organ, like a an organizing meeting where she helps you come up with your book outline. We created it. And I was like, okay, great. What's next? And uh, I'm a pretty self-motivated person. So I didn't end up signing up for her like full, like her full service package. Instead, uh, during that meeting, she then gave me kind of like a production calendar of you should have this much written by this date, this by this date in order to have our launch date. And so then I wrote the rest of the book in about six to eight weeks Uh, spent the next month doing developmental edits. And then I sent it to her to do like the actual copy editing Mm because that's her background. Uh, She was a copy editor in the publishing world before she started her own business. And then it's all the other shit that actually ends up being really sticky, like getting the typeset form and then having Mm -hmm. to edit it and like ordering multiple proofs. Uh, So we got, we did all of that in 2020. Okay. Wow. 
In addition to your book, there's a number of other ways that people can work with you. Like you said, you have the digital product and um, programs. So you've got the contract vault, the membership, and then the VIP days. What has your experience been like with an offer suite that has such like polarization as far as price point goes? Um, And maybe like the dichotomy between like the heavy emphasis on the lower cost one-to-many model and then that limited capacity for VIP days. Like how does that all work with your audience and your like schedule and stuff like that? Yeah, well, it works pretty well. And a lot of, not a lot, a few of these things are changing. We're rolling out a new program this fall. Mm -hmm. Um, So some of these things are going to be tweaked. But like you mentioned, I have my $30 offer, which is a suite of contract templates. I call it the contract vault. And I don't, I, I kind of actually did that spur of the moment in January, but that's been great. I'm using it. I'd actually have to go look. But I could probably just about guaranteed we've sold twice as many of that product is like as I've gotten free, like freebie opt-ins this year. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And I know that makes sense because I don't think I've ever opted into one of your freebies, but I bought the contract ball. Oh, good. Okay, good. And what what was it? What was it like when you got in there? Did you have hesitations because it was only $30? Because I hear that from a lot of people. Not really, because I specifically knew that I needed a privacy policy and I knew that there was a privacy policy in there and I just like wanted to check it off my list. And I was like, I'll figure out the rest of the stuff later. Nice. Um, and nice. I also heard you on a podcast talking about it. And so like that did the work of the sales page before I even read the sales page. But it is a really good value. And so that does make a lot of sense, like why it has maybe sold more than you've gotten freebie opt-ins. Yeah. Yeah. So that essentially just operates as almost like a paid list generator is mm-hmm. the way that I think about it. Otherwise, you know, I often have this question of, well, if I doubled the price to $60 and then I got, you know, 350 sales as opposed to 600 sales, I technically would net more money, but then I'd have less qualified buyers on my email list. So that's mm-hmm. the way I think about that product offering. I make the largest percentage of my revenue from my membership, which is called Profit RX, your prescription to build a healthy and wealthy business. And that really is my old signature course that I uh, in, then converted into a membership model. And we have a lot of different stuff happening in that membership, um, lots of templates, things like that. And then um, the VIP days, the one on one stuff, I don't really have that front and center on my website. I more just promote those on the side. And those are just really for people uh, who need really, really quick results. They like want to get their LLC formed like this for whatever reason. And what we're doing moving forward, I can let you know, is that we're introducing kind of like a third tier toward the membership, which is actually going to be a signature one-on-one service. Mm -hmm. And we'll be dialing back the VIP days a little bit. So super excited about that. Okay, cool. So it's like people who are in the membership can have like a higher membership tier for some one-on-one support or? Kind of. So we actually already have two tiers in the membership. We have um, one is a content only tier. That's the base tier. So there's no support. It's $30 a month uh, and you get access really to like my entire course suite. And then the VIP tier, um, I'm working with our friend Kira at Paradigm Consulting right now to hire a bookkeeper who's actually going to be responsible for doing Voxer, uh, weekly Voxer office hours 
and co-working calls and Q&A calls for people in the VIP tier who want help, uh, routine help with their bookkeeping. So you'll like add us to your QuickBooks account, and then we'll have a monthly co-working call with me. If you have difficult clients and you need help like writing emails to them, doing cancellation agreements and contracts. So that's the membership. Mm-hmm. And then um, the very brief explanation is that we're rolling out a one-on-one like done-for-you bookkeeping service where our uh, team of bookkeepers and accountants will actually do your books. Basically, it's going to be a tax firm, right? But we're okay. not really going to market it like that. Gotcha. Um, and the name... Do you want to hear the name for it? I just came up with it this week. Hell yeah. Okay. So tentatively, we're going to launch it as a cohort... Tell me if this makes any sense (laughs) because you coach on offers, right? And customer journey. I'm calling it a cohort-based signature one-on-one service. So there'll be group coaching elements, but we're enrolling people like in cohort models like you would do with a normal launch. Mm -hmm. And the tentative name is Money MD. So I love that. Profit RX, which Mm -hmm. is it's like a product, right? It's like a thing that you buy. And then Money MD is more of the service. So we're gonna I'm going to call call myself like your money doctor, right? That's amazing. Yeah, that's freaking awesome. This week's episode of Messy in the Middle is sponsored by Thought Leaders Collective. Are you so sick of Facebook groups, totally over Instagram pods, looking for a place to find community and collaboration online without all the spammy sales, bro marketers, and frankly, bullshit that comes with the online space? then boy, do I have the thing for you. Thought Leaders Collective is for the online service provider who is ready to step into the spotlight and make a name for themselves, but is just plain tired of coming up with fresh new content for every platform every week. You just want to log on, share your genius, and bask in the glow of your newfound visibility. But it can't be that easy, can it? With Thought Leaders Collective, it totally can. Weekly thought leadership prompts delivered straight to your inbox, Co-working sessions so you can carve out the time to actually be visible on LinkedIn, strategic planning to get you laser focused, and a supportive community of other online service providers who just get it. What more could you ask for? I could tell you stories of members like Rachel, who had someone submit an inquiry on her site within hours of posting her first TLC prompt. Or Kira, who said, Haley, this LinkedIn shit is bananas. My visibility and reach are insane. Or Meg, who is a self-described LinkedIn stan, now that TLC is supporting her content and community needs. Or you could go to thepropagy.com slash TLC and use code MESSY at checkout to get your first month free and see for yourself how great TLC and LinkedIn can be. That's thepropagy.com slash TLC with code M-E-S-S-Y at checkout to get your first month free. After that, it's just 27 bucks a month and you can cancel anytime, but I doubt you'll want to. Can't wait to see you on LinkedIn. So when you decided to turn your signature program into a membership, what kind of spurred that decision? Um, I asked for two reasons. One, because I'm curious, and two, because I'm kind of considering doing the same thing. Yeah. What spurred that decision and how did you, I guess, validate that idea and know (laughs) that it would work? Yeah, well, this kind of goes with the messy in the middle theme, right? So mm-hmm. I had in I had a really good year in 2020 with COVID. It actually was the opposite of what I expected. I work 
with a lot of wedding professionals. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, they were in the middle of a shitstorm because yeah. all of their clients were canceling. So I launched a membership then to kind of help them with that. And my customer journey was a total mess. So what I had was I had a front end membership, I had a signature course, and then I had a back end membership. Mm-hmm. And it turns out it's really hard to convert people from a membership with like technically like no end objective, like into any other kind of offer. So I don't even know if front end memberships like work in general. I'm sure someone has made them work. But what I ended up deciding to do, so we had the front end membership and then the signature course was called Unfuck Your Biz. Mm -hmm. And that was my five module, $2,000 course. And then I had my alumni membership, which I called Unfucked. I never really loved the name. It was even (laughs) a, a little too aggressive even for me. But I ended up just thinking, you know what? What would it look like if I could just for simplicity, for marketing purposes, for my own purposes, if I could fold all three of these things into one program? Mm -hmm. And 2021 was a really bad year for me revenue-wise. I had a really dismal launch in the spring. And then I really struggled financially in the summer. And I tried a bunch of different things. And so I really just started to crave consistency of revenue. And that was my goal for 2022. And so the membership model... Uh, I decided was going to be like the solution to all those questions. Mm -hmm. So now the new offer that I'm going to be launching is kind of my way to introduce the higher ticket thing now, except it's going to be uh, a done for you offer. Yeah. And like still on that membership model. Yeah. Well, no, it's going to be, it's actually going to be a two or $3,000 like cohort thing. So it's, uh, you get, uh, what we're actually going to do is we do two months of bookkeeping for you in the container, along with a number of other deliverables. And then at the end of the container, um, we'll have a sales call with each of our students or our clients. Mm-hmm. And then you'll decide if you want to go into the monthly done for you services at $400 a month. If you want to just go your merry way with your books and the tutorials and trainings we give you, or if you want to join like maybe the VIP tier of our membership with the done with you support is how we're structuring it. Gotcha. That makes more sense. So you kind of mentioned having a rough 2021. Yeah. What is something either financially or otherwise about entrepreneurship that you found to be more difficult than you anticipated, or maybe even more difficult than had you continued on your path as like a practicing attorney or like gone into international tax law? Yeah. For me, a lot of the difficulty just comes down to the like the growth trajectory like mm-hmm. i've grown a lot slower than i really originally anticipated i would but i i definitely wouldn't trade it like i love it <laughs> yeah i i feel the same way um something that i've been experiencing a lot over the past year or so has been like this fomo as i'm like entering my late 20s and my peers are you know, getting settled into their more like management roles and making more money and going on trips. And I'm just like, my business is stable and I'm really proud of that. But if I were to drop everything, I could probably make like double or triple what I make right now. Do you ever kind of feel that way about bad, like rough stages in your business? Like, oh, I could just hang in the towel and like go make more money working for someone else. Oh, all the time. And I like, I've been, I've been offered, like I've been offered salary jobs from people. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had the opportunity to interview for Exxon Mobil, like after my master's program. Mm -hmm. Um, So get this, I was a Russian major in undergrad. Um, I was an attorney. I had a master's in tax law. 
And I had an opportunity open where I could have interviewed to work for Exxon Mobil's like tax division. So I would essentially be a tax consultant for Exxon Mobil and travel back and forth between Los Angeles and Moscow. And I ended up basically, I just met a retired attorney who had a connection. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? Um, thank you, but no, thank you. I'd rather just not even tempt myself, but I, I didn't even pursue it. So opportunities like that come up. And often I think, you know, how much more money could I be making if I did that? But then I usually tell myself, well, with the trajectory that my business is on, I should, you know, I can be making double that like three years from now. Mm-hmm. So that myself. potential like kind of keeps you going. Yes. Yeah. I think I've definitely like, had some like confidence issues like earlier this year where like that potential was always like, I don't know if I can make more than this in two or three years. Like I wasn't making more than this, you know, two or three years ago. So who knows? But I think that confidence is a great thing that like, you're definitely able to build over time. And I just haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, it, it, it takes a lot for sure. Yeah. So your brand is very Brayden centric as it should be. You're the attorney. (laughs) And you mentioned having a team, even though from the outside, it kind of feels like your business is just you sometimes. So in a time where it seems like the online business world is pushing a lot of CEOs need to be CEOs, someone else needs to do all the doing, like all you need to do is like the visionary stuff. How do you embrace being like the face of your brand? And do you ever get pushback from like your peers or business advisors about how much of your brand is about you? No, I I don't really, I don't feel like I really get any pushback. I mean, I would say like on that note, I I would say the only real issue with being the face of your business is it makes it potentially difficult if you ever want someone else to step in the coaching role, right? Mm -hmm. If you ever want someone else leading the programs, but there are ways that you can like slowly introduce them. The bigger issue is you need to have kind of a segue or an exit plan if you ever plan to sell your business, which is something I think about as an attorney. I don't know if that's ever something I will want to do. But I, w- I would say no, but also for me, it might be different because most of the people that I followed and have looked up to, like that's the position they're in, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Amy Porterfield was my like, quote unquote, mentor. And when I say she's my mentor, I didn't mean like, I think people understand she's not my one-on-one my one on one mentor, but <laughs> just follow her closely, watch what she does. She has, I think, 22, I, I interviewed her on my podcast. And I think mm-hmm. at that point she had 20 or 22 full-time employees, but, oh but she still is like totally the face of her own business. Yeah. Okay. I guess I just feel like I couldn't imagine having that many people working for me, but maybe 20 people. Yeah. That's yeah. so many. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's like, well, what's this is, this is the problem as a fellow podcast host. I have a hard time just answering questions. Oh my God. Them. No, what's, it's totally fine. <laughs> what's your, like, what is your, what's your end goal? I don't know. I had for a while, I thought that my end goal was like, I was going to scale up to an agency. And there was a point where I had, I think four or five employees, everyone was Mm part-time. And I realized like, whether scaling to an agency was my end goal or not, the agency that I'd scaled into was not the one that was going to be, you know, long lasting. So I tore it all back down. And now I'm like a one and a half woman show. I have a Uh part-time employee helping me. And now I'm just working towards like that stability and figuring out what I love enough to scale up into something else. But I think I've spent the last couple of years trying to decide like, do I want to be that like million dollar agency person or do I want to just like 
have a business that I like and that keeps a roof over my head. Like, I don't really know. And I think this is the first time I've thought about it in a while because I used to put so much (laughs) pressure on myself to figure it out. And lately I've just been like, live your life and you can figure it out later. (laughs) Yeah. So this is, I think, okay, I have have a fun concept for you. So I, I teach this on one of my programs and are you familiar with the book Traction? I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Okay. So it teaches the entrepreneurial operating system. It's a lot like the book clockwork. These are Mm -hmm. all books that kind of teach like overarching big picture business systems and in traction, the author, Gina Wickman has you develop your 10 year vision, your three year picture, your one year goal, and then you break it down into quarters. Or for a lot of people a 10 year vision is very hard. They just feel like they're making it up. Mm -hmm. And what I like to do and the way I like to think about it is have you ever seen those puzzles that are like translucent? Like each piece is clear. You can see through it. How annoying does that sound? Do you know what I'm that talking sounds, about? I have no idea what you're talking about, but my mom is obsessed with puzzles. And so like now I need to find one for her. Yeah. It's just like <laughs> a nightmare. It's just like a nightmare. Um, but what I tell my students is like, think of your 10 year vision initially as like a translucent puzzle. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost impossible to piece it together because the, the puzzle pieces have no clarity to them. Whereas your one year goal might be like a 25 piece, like children's puzzle. Yeah. And then like your three and your five year, they might be, um, they might be like partially transparent, but like partially the picture is there. Mm-hmm. And the more you think about it and the more you journal and the more you really dive into what you like and what you don't like, the puzzle pieces start to gain more and more color and you can piece them together a little bit more. So that's what I tell my students when we like start to do this, this process. And what I've come up with, what I used to do my 10 year vision, I would say, you know, I want to have a $5 million company and I want this and I want that. And now I've kind of thrown all that out the window. I don't really care anymore. Um, Ultimately, what I want is I want to have 25 to $30,000 a month in Mm -hmm. take home pay. So for me, that's after expenses and after taxes. And I know that based on my current profit margins and projected profit margins, that's probably a six to $800,000 a year business. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I anticipate in order to get there, I'll likely need a full-time bookkeeper, a full-time enrolled agent, uh, and then probably a full-time like marketing person. So my goal now is three to five full-time employees and maybe a couple part-time employees. And I want to take home about $30,000 a month without working more than four hours a day. So that's a pretty clear vision. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's like a realistic, like five to 10 year goal, but we'll see. Yeah, definitely. And do you have like, I think the thing that I've always struggled with when coming up with these like ambitious future goals is that I don't really care a lot about like the money <laughs> side of things. Yeah. Like yeah. I don't make a ton of money. I'm doing all right. So like, do you have a why behind like what $25,000 a month after taxes will look like for you or can yes. do for you? Okay. Yeah. Be- yeah. And I think about this in granular detail, right? It's mm-hmm. the, like finding a house that you want to buy, like on your vision board. Right. Uh, and what is the mortgage on that house cost mm-hmm. and what's the upkeep on that house and where do I want to go on vacation? And when I say, t- keep in mind also, I'm married, so I have dual source of income. Mm-hmm. And when I say my goal is this amount of take-home pay, that would be to have like an exceptionally comfortable life. Yeah. Without being, yeah. yeah. Without being like, I mean, technically rich on paper, it would definitely mm-hmm. be like top 1%. Right. But it's not like, I don't, I don't have any goal to be like mega rich and to like have a massive company. Yeah. Our goal, my husband and I, we have a goal to like 
live in a certain neighborhood in San Diego. My husband wants to have a vacation house in Maui and I want to go to the front. Like I want to go to the French open every year to watch tennis tournaments. And with that amount of money, we could do all those things. I could pay off my student loans. I could save to have enough money in my 401k that I need. We will be more than fine if I don't ever get there. Right. But that's that's like like, the fun dreamy thing. Yeah. But that's my why it's, Mm -hmm. it's all that stuff. And it's, uh, it's ambitious, but it's also realistic. So these are the things that I think about for me. I, I I am, I am pretty materialistic and that's something I don't (laughs) mind sharing because I think uh, the world be, be a better place if we're just honest about those kind of things. Like I want a Louis Vuitton bag and I like to, you know, drive a nice car. And I recognized at the end of the day that uh, my life will be plenty fulfilled without those things, mm-hmm. but they will be nice to have. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think <laughs> I know what I'm going to do with my afternoon. Now I've got some future visioning to do, which <laughs> good, all good, of good. my listeners who are my friends who know how much I hate visioning and meditating and like all of that stuff are probably going to sit there and like roll their eyes. Like, what is he yeah. talking about? I'm doing it. <laughs> have you ever, have you done the strengths finder test before? Yes. I actually have my strengths on a sticky note in front of me. (laughs) Nice. Okay. So I've done it like four times Mm -hmm. and every time I do it, futuristic is my number one trait. So, Mm -hmm. so mine here, right here is relator, learner, strategic, analytical, and input, which is probably why I have a hard time thinking about future stuff because I'm so focused on right now stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So strategic and futuristic are both in my top three. So like sitting down and like strategizing, like what the, like what my future is going to look like is like something I do for fun, honestly, as a distraction when I should be doing other things. So my brain kind of like (laughs) lives in the future. That is aspirational. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's not, I mean, it's not always the best thing because sometimes you're distracting yourself from the things that you should be doing. And also if you have really strong futuristic trait, you're also not great at looking into the past, which means mm. we forget things very quickly. And then I end up, I'll end up like planning something that I've already done. And like, <laughs> it, it, like it did, it did not go well the first time, but I've like literally forgotten about it. Okay. <laughs> so switching gears a little bit to some more actionable advice for our audience, as much as I'm sure they love listening to our talk about our future selves. Um, I feel like every online business legal associated person is preaching that you shouldn't use contract templates. You need to work to create something custom. Templates are crap, except for my templates. You should buy my templates. So if you could please explain for our listeners, what is the difference between a free template, an inexpensive template, and like a custom thing that a lawyer is drawing up for you? Or is it all just kind of like marketing from lawyers? I mean, it's a little bit of all of the above, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. Okay. So first of all, any attorney is going to give you a disclaimer that if you buy a template, you still need to take it to a local attorney, right? And mm-hmm. have it reviewed, all that kind of stuff. And that's simply because here in the States, we have 50 different States and each state has their own laws. The reality is that especially with more simple contracts, it's not going to change state to state, Mm -hmm. except for a few specific things. So to give you an example, we have, there's something called a non-disparagement clause, which you would write into your contract that says that your client cannot write anything negative about the services, right? No Mm -hmm. negative Yelp reviews, nothing. I think that you can understand that for consumer protection reasons, like as a policy matter, we might not like that, right? Yeah. Like Elizabeth Warren does not like, she's not going to like that. 
So in liberal states like California, that's generally not allowed. Like you can't Mm -hmm. do that. In other states, it is allowed. More conservative states is typically allowed. There's a handful of those. In my templates, I tend just to not include those provisions. Like if they're gray, especially because like I am kind of morally and ethically against that, even if you legally could do it. So there's that. A lot of other stuff, you're going to be fine. What I always tell people is when it comes to templates, you're often better off buying a contract template from someone who's well-versed in your industry mm-hmm. than going to hire an attorney who has no idea what you do. Like, right. Do you have any family members who just like don't understand your business no matter how many times you explain it to them? Every single one of them. Yeah. So now imagine like one of them is a lawyer and you yes. hire them. Like, how are they going to write? Like, how are they going to write these specific provisions of your contract if they like can't wrap the brain, like their brain around how mm-hmm. you charge people and what you deliver to them? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So is there like any giveaway or like certain thing that people should look for if they're trying to spot like a good contract template versus a bad contract template? Or does it really just come down to like preference and who you decide to trust with your money? Yeah. I mean, the first thing to me would be like, do you understand? Like, do you understand? Can you read it? Do you understand it? Uh, If it's not clear, then it probably is a contract that is just, it's, I call them like Frankenstein contracts, right? Mm -hmm. It's a lot of boilerplate that's not really been adapted to uh, like with the times and with the industry. If you're dealing with corporate contracts, we're going to have corporate attorneys reviewing both sides. They're going to be a lot more verbose and have a lot more bloated legal language than you and I need in our Mm -hmm. contracts. So start there. And then the other thing is clarity and consistency and an absence of redundancies, meaning we want an absence. We, this is like a double negative, right? Or no, I got you mean. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want any redundancies. Um, so that's really important as well. And feel free to ask more pinpointed questions on the contracts. Cause I, I, I end up, I can go like on and on. Yeah. So is, is the absence of redundancies like having too many redundancies is just an indication that the contract itself isn't clear or might be like kind of copy pasted or is there yes, like an actual copy pasted. like legal reason to not want a lot of redundancies? Both, both. Okay. So for example, we have, um, okay. So I'll give you a really clear example. I tend to have a cancellation paragraph in all my contracts and a cancellation paragraph. If you're a wedding planner and you mm-hmm. have a wedding date is going to look different than a cancellation contract for like a VIP day, which can just be like rescheduled, really no harm, no foul, other yeah. than it's annoying, right? So we have a cancellation paragraph. Now, due to COVID, pretty much all contract templates also have force majeure clauses. And uh, we often call that an act of God clause. It's what happens if there's event, an event that's outside of our control is to cancel an event. And oftentimes people will put in a force majeure clause what happens with regard to refunds, but that's also in the cancellation provision. So Mm -hmm. if the contract clauses are not clear as to this force majeure refund policy only applies in the case of a force majeure event and not to other types of cancellations, now we have a redundancy. It's unclear. It's an ambiguity. And if that contract went to a court of law, one person's going to argue the contract says A, the other person says B, and now the judge can just technically 
There's a lot of ways they could settle mm-hmm. it, but they could choose to throw out both contract provisions, kind of make their own decision. They could bring in emails, all this kind of stuff. Um, but if you see a lot of redundancies in contracts, it typically means that people have been copy and pasting. Mm -hmm. So they bought my contract template that has a very clear cancellation policy that applies to every type of cancellation. And then they bought someone else's template that talks about cancellation in the force majeure clause. And they maybe decided that they like that force majeure clause better. So they copy and paste it into my contract template. And now the two things are competing. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, you'll see templates that actually have that same issue because they've been copy and pasted from that own person's like series of templates. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I'm Sorry, just that was really about, long-winded, like, but I... No, it was great. I'm just thinking about like some of the like bullshit contracts I've put together over the years, like of like copy and pasting from my own things. And I'm like, oh God, Brayden is never yeah. going to see these. <laughs> well, it's kind of too... Like, to give you a clear example, it's like, like I clone a lot of sales pages, right? And this mm-hmm. happens, this happens all the time. I clone a sales page and then I edit it. And then I'll forget that I had like two FAQs in that sales page that applied to my old offer that don't apply to my new offer. And then maybe I'm explaining something totally different somewhere else in the sales page. Mm-hmm. So ultimately it just comes down to wanting to take a shortcut. But then, I mean, really you need to read through the entire thing to make sure it's all cohesive with your end product. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So is there a certain like recommendation that you would have for an industry or revenue level or stage of business where someone should be upgrading from, let's say, a very good templated contract to something more custom? Or if you have a good templated contract, you can be good to go. Yeah, if you have a good templated contract, you're good to go. Um, But it really just comes down, it more comes down to how unique your offer is. Mm -hmm and what you're promising. If you, you know, if you go take Amy Porterfield's course and you're offering a $2,000 course and you're have all the, you're basically doing everything Amy tells you to do. Mm -hmm. Well, going with whoever she recommends as far as course terms, you're probably going to be golden, right? Because they basically wrote it for the way that she teaches you to do it. If you're offering a VIP day where it's like a three-hour service, that contract's not super... We all like to think that we're really unique. That doesn't mean our contract needs to be really unique. right? Um, Once you start doing stuff that's really like custom and really kind of like your own way of thinking in terms of the deliverables and how you work, then it needs to be different. Mm -hmm. So to give you an example, um, I just interviewed a copywriter on my podcast and she works with all of her clients in a two week container. It's like they do, it's kind of like a VIP day, but it's really a VIP week. Mm-hmm. And so for that, it wouldn't be a complicated contract to draft, but her offer structure would need a little bit of customization and tweaking than what would probably be in like my typical copywriting contract. Right. Okay. So I guess kind of going along with this as a small, nosy personal contract question, um, I use Thrivecart for my billing and they have the option to include like agree to terms and conditions when you purchase. If Uh you're offering just like a VIP day or a day rate or something where the client is paying in full upfront, you're doing all of the work in one day and then like the relationship is over. Is there a downside to just having someone agree to the terms instead of like going back and forth with signing a contract? No, not really. I mean, really the the only downside is notice. Uh, If you're having them, basically if you're having them check the box, there's, Mm -hmm. they're much less likely to even skim through the contract, let alone actually read the contract. So that's fine. 
typically what I recommend is if it's like a one-off thing and it's like very simple, it's for like a one-day thing, terms of service are probably great. If you're doing like a $10,000 six-week coaching container, Mm -hmm. then I might send them like through Dubsado or HoneyBook or something like that. And it has it, it almost has less to do with the dollar figure and more to do with the fact that there's a lot more that can go wrong over a six-month period. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's part of why I like doing days and like weeks right now is because just that shorter container is like there's so much less room for someone to get distracted, someone to change their mind, something to go wrong. Like I don't yeah. like dealing with any of that mess. <laughs> I feel you. So other than that notice, I guess, is there really a difference between accepting terms and conditions and signing a contract or are they kind of the same thing? Yeah, they're basically the same thing. They're equal. They're equally binding. It, it's just uh, sending in the contract tells the person like, hey, I'm really like not dicking around. I probably should right. ask you at the top if I was allowed to swear on your podcast. Oh, yeah, you are. <laughs> I've dropped like a mini already. I think I have too. It's fine. I think when I first decided to start a podcast, I asked my podcast editor, I was like, can we be an explicit podcast or will that be bad for us? She was like, you can be an explicit podcast. Oh, perfect. Okay, great. I think after meeting me, she was like, I think you have to be an explicit podcast. Like, I don't, I don't trust you to let me uh, bleep all these out. Um, Speaking of expletives, I'd love to talk about your podcast on fucking this. Yeah. (laughs) So first I love the title. I know that's also the title of your book. So I'm totally here for it. And second, you talk about money on your podcast a lot. When it comes to finding guests for your show, do you find that you have a difficult time getting people to open up about their numbers? Or is it something that people kind of know about when they pitch you or you ask them to be on the show? Yeah, kind of, because everyone has a different comfort level when it comes to opening up about their numbers. Mm -hmm. Now, up until this point, so I do my own monthly profit report on my podcast. So I share Mm -hmm. all my own numbers monthly. I think that helps. I think that also helps people because they're like, well, if you're going to do it, then I'll share. I haven't done a ton. I call them profit report episodes. I haven't done a ton of profit report episodes up until now. Mm -hmm. So I haven't had to ask a whole lot of people. But I'm starting to do it more. I actually just recorded three of them that I'm going to be dripping out and we'll probably do more in the future. And typically, I just have a few like screener questions that I go over. Like, are you comfortable talking about this? Are you comfortable talking about this? So to give you an example, like when I had Amy on, she was like, I'm happy to talk about percentages. Um, I just don't want to talk about like gross revenue numbers. So mm-hmm. she was like, I'm not, I won't tell you like my total income, but I'll tell you like, if you ask me what percentage of my revenue is my signature course, happy to answer it. What percentage of my revenue like goes to contractors. So we talked about things in terms of percentages, mm-hmm. um, but ideally love to get dollar figures when we can too. Gotcha. Because I remember, I think the first podcast of yours that I listened to was when you um, interviewed Claire. Yeah. But that to me was like, oh, well, that's a match made in heaven. Like, I don't think anyone loves to talk about numbers more than Claire does. So that totally makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I always joke with Claire that someday her and I are going to co-host a podcast. Not that any of us need to do that right now. But yeah, that... <laughs> that um that episode was that episode was super fun. I might actually reach out to her to see if we can do like a one year later follow up in a few months. Oh, fun. that would be so fun. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't not listen to a podcast by the two of you. <laughs> so you have on your website some highlighted episodes that are a great place for people to get started with your show. And we will obviously link that on our show notes. But do you have any sleeper hits or podcast episodes that you think are kind of underrated and you wish got some more attention? 
Oh, that's such a fun question. So sleeper hits on my own podcast. Yes. Um, let me go to the podcast page on my website because there I highlight my favorite ones. Mm-hmm. So we have the profit reports up there. The episodes with Claire and Amy, I also have there. So those were both super fun. I have an episode on back taxes, which mm-hmm. not, not really fun, but important <laughs> if you need it. Um, one that I think people thought was really interesting was episode 231 was titled my S corp cost me more in taxes last year. So mm-hmm. a lot of people are curious about S corps. I, uh, long story short, I made a lot less money last year than I thought I was going to make. And I formed my S corp based on my projections it ended up not being a good year. I should have done it this year. So it cost me taxes. So mm-hmm. if you're nosy about my own finances and you're curious about S-Corps, that's a really good one. Awesome. I definitely wish I researched S-Corps more before I became one because I definitely did it way too early. Um, but I'm at yeah. the point now where like my accountant basically said like, one day it'll make sense for you to have an S-Corp. So you might as well hang on to it. Yeah. But I definitely think I learned that lesson the hard way. Yeah, we have a we have an S corp savings calculator and my membership among lots of other fun tools and resources. So we help that people figure that out before they form, like decide what entity they're going to form. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I uh, I formed mine at the end of 2020, which like was one of my best quarters ever. Like the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021, uh-huh. and then it was just like a sharp downturn, and then it kind of plateaued. And I was like, I definitely picked <laughs> the wrong time to do this. Are you, uh, are you familiar with profit first? I am familiar, but I don't follow it, which I probably should look back into, but. Oh, it, it's okay. I just share it with like <laughs> conceptually that that book is all about like creating separate accounts. Right. And yeah, what I do is when you have an S corp, you have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. Mm-hmm. And I have people, even before they have an S-Corp, you do a transfer to yourself on a monthly basis. And we call it, it's your owner's compensation. It's whatever, whatever it is. And we determine what your future reasonable salary should be in an Mm S-Corp. And your goal is to work your way up to transferring that dollar amount to yourself on a monthly basis. And then you form your S-Corp once you're able to do that for like three to six consistent months, depending on your own level of comfort. And then it's great because once you follow the S Corp, you basically have already been doing the workflow, the cash flow, the process, and you're ready to go. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That makes so much more sense than the way I did it, <laughs> which was kind of just like transfer and panic. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, on that note, Brayden, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Listeners, go check out his podcast and listen to his show on Fuck Your Biz. Where else can people find you and hang out with you online? Yeah, so then go to my website, www.bradendrake.com. The podcast, like you mentioned, just make sure you put an asterisk for the U if you want it to show up in the search results. And then I do have a Facebook group called Braden's Besties. And then if you want to just chat with me or say hello, the best place is on Instagram at Braden, B R A D E N. Adam, like the biblical figure, Drake, like the rapper. That's my full name. Love that. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Messy in the Middle. Hey there. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Or more likely, thanks for leaving your phone just far enough away that you can't get to it in time to skip past this part. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and leave a review. And shout out to my guests for joining me, my dog for not barking, my editor Chrissy for doing her thing, and my friend Devin for letting me use his music. 
You can check out all of the links for the podcast, anything mentioned in today's episode, and the amazing people who helped me put on the show in the show notes. Bye!